this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. On the Relax Back UK show we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. And thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show. First topic today is type 2 diabetes. Now, I, I speak with an MD, a behavioural scientist and a sufferer. We cover a lot of ground from the expense of the condition to us all. But I can tell you in terms of the financial burden uh, yeah. borne by the NHS, it's about £300 every second is spent on type 2 diabetes. So billions wow. of pounds uh, a year. Then on to ways to deal with the disease when it happens and why some patients might be less responsive to help than others and what can be done about that. Judgment and stigma are such a useless and actually counterproductive emotion that actually we should be trying to conduct conversations about this disease in a much more sure. positive way. Then we have inventor Gary Watts who's developed a device to help with yoga, posture and all kinds of things. So you can roll out over the back of it. But what makes it different to anything else is that you can use each three of the separate pieces. You can take them apart and then you can use each separate piece on its own. So please do stay tuned for a great show. Thank you. This show is cool. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk .co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with zero zilch zip because nothing's better. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. The topic today is uh, diabetes, but uh, more specifically type 2 diabetes. And my guests are Dr. Ian Braithwaite. He's a, a medical doctor and CEO of Habitual Health. Uh, Sil Dr. Sylvia Vuma, she's a behavioral scientist. And, uh, and Mindy as well, who has type 2 diabetes. So first of all, uh, guys, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Um, I, I'd like to sort of to start off with kind of get right back to um, basics and ask probably uh, Dr. Braithwaite uh, what the difference is between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Hmm. Well, that's a great question, first and foremost, uh, and morning. Um, so 90% of diabetes is actually type 2 diabetes, with the other 10% being made up from type 1 diabetes. Now, type 1 diabetes is a condition that people 
normally develop towards the end of their teenage years, if not a little bit earlier. Um, and what happens is the cells that control insulin, which then control blood sugar, start to fail because the body starts attacking them. And it's something called an autoimmune condition. And so um, whereas type 2 diabetes typically presents later in life, and we know that type 2 diabetes is a more gradual um, disease onset. And so it starts with something called pre-diabetes where blood sugars go up a little bit. And we know that the body becomes resistant to insulin, which again is that hormone that controls blood sugar. And then as you get towards type two diabetes, the liver and pancreas stop responding to insulin as well. And then the cells that control uh, that produce insulin and control blood sugar start to fail as well. So you can see that they're both very similarly related because they're all about blood sugar and it's all about controlling insulin, which controls blood sugar, but actually they're very different disease process access actually. So it can be very confusing. All right. Okay. We may all come to, back to that, but let's park it just now back to concentrating on type two. What, what are the numbers at the moment? How many people are actually getting this in the UK? Yeah. So we're coming up to about 5 million people now living with type 2 diabetes in the UK, which is an astonishing number. Um, it's about one in 14, seem to be one in 10 adults in the UK are living with type 2 diabetes. So it's an incredibly common condition. That's huge. And is it a worldwide problem or is it, does it tend to be a problem of the developed world, more developed world? Uh, rates vary depending on which country we're talking about, but it is absolutely a global problem. There are about 500 million people living with type 2 diabetes worldwide, and, and it affects every country in the world, um, but more so towards um, developed countries or wow. at a higher uh, ratio. Just, just as part of the, the background here, let me ask, this question is probably a bit unfair, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Does anyone have any idea what this costs, you know, back to the UK, really, you know, what does it cost, you know, the NHS days in lost work, and, you know, anguish of patients and family? Um, I mean, hard to put a number on anguish, but I can tell you in terms of the financial burden uh, yeah. borne by the NHS, it's about £300 every second is spent on type 2 diabetes. So billions wow. of pounds uh, a year. Um, and it's it's trillion dollars a year worldwide as well. So it's an enormous cost. And the reason is that type 2 diabetes puts puts patients at a much higher likelihood of having some of the most awful and also costly to treat uh, complications of the disease, such as heart attack stroke, heart failure, blindness, amputation, etc. And for example, there are about 104,000 uh, cases of heart failure that are attributed to type 2 diabetes each year. So it's, it's an, and that's in the UK, sorry. So it's an enormous problem. Okay. So, so this is a very serious thing. You know, this is not, oh, I've got type 2 diabetes, never mind. I'll just take a pill and crack on with life. It's like a gateway to all sorts of really very nasty things. Well, I think that's a really interesting kind of uh, point you just made there. And that, that's kind of how we had traditionally managed type 2 diabetes, right? You go and see your GP, they might uh, prescribe you uh, your first medication, it would probably be metformin, and then you kind of get on with life as it is. But I think as our understanding of the disease uh, has evolved, we realise that that's just simply not enough to, to help most people and actually even help patients into remission. Right. Which brings on to this whole whole uh, topic of of lifestyle being a big factor. Mm. Um, how does is it possible to sort of say, well, so much of type two diabetes is due to lifestyle and this percentage is due to actually you're just kind of unlucky with your genes. 
<laughs> you know, you've been dealt a bad hand. Um, so it's it's a very it's very complex the development of type two diabetes, and there are uh, a lot of different risk factors that play in. So cultural, familial, food environment, um, as you say, genetic, microbiome. And then obviously behavioral plays a big part in that as well. But I think the way we need to grow our understanding of it is uh, we have very little control over, you know, where we're born, who we're born to, what kind of life we lead. Actually, we're all at the whims of chance, really. And actually, the behavioral changes you can make after a diagnosis may not have been available to people before. They may not have had the opportunity, the knowledge, the, the time to be able to make those changes. And so rather than I think being more uh, blaming of patients and talking about the behavioral lead up to type two diabetes, I think that there's a much more empathetic, much kinder way of approaching uh, conversations post type two diabetes that aren't associated with the stigma around the disease. Sure, sure. And also, I, I kind of think that my, my impression is, all right, we can't do anything about our genes. You know, we're, we're stuck with that. But actually changing people's lifestyle and, and habits uh, might be just as hard. I mean, people are pretty unpredictable, aren't they? And, you know, get, get, getting someone, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 56. You know, if I would suddenly have to change my ways, this would be an uphill struggle for me. And I, I, I suspect it's no mean feat uh, to get someone to change their habits. And that's kind of where you guys are coming in to, to help. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming we have a behavioral scientist with us. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Mike. <clears throat> that's, again, a really interesting perspective to bring in and, and an important one. And I would say something we're seeing um, together with Habitual and, and the research that Habitual has conducted recently in terms of how um, people with type two diabetes are perceived in the media and by the general public and how they perceive their own narratives reflected back to them really gets to the heart of the challenge of changing behavior. And I would say currently our, our kind of, how we talk about it in society is very individualistic. So there's a lot of responsibility placed on the individual person to sort of do the right thing without having yeah. had the foundation as Ian was talking about to really um, take those actions and behavior change in a sustainable way and in, a, in an empathetic way is a much more community-based um, endeavor. So I think what we're seeing is that, yes, it's difficult to change behavior, and especially if it exists in the context of any kind of like external expectation of someone to, let's say, quote unquote, be a better person, which I feel like is the underlying theme of a lot of behavior. Sure. Conversations. Well, I mean, so my, my impression is that actually sufferers don't get a lot of sympathy. And if they don't get a lot, a lot of sympathy, they might not get that much support from, well, family and friends and that kind of thing. Yes, exactly. The, there isn't a lot of sympathy for people with type 2 diabetes, and this is also what the recent research by Habitual has shown and, and other research as well. So I think there's a really big opportunity here to just have a different kind of conversation around what is the role of behavior change or lifestyle changes in type 2 diabetes and where is the um, kind of right kind of support that we can offer people who live with it. Sure. And so my, my impression, what you guys are trying to do, uh, you're saying that it's not just diet, 
although that's a very important part of it, it's lifestyle changes. So can you give us a, some ideas, a, a list of the sort of things that you, you mean by that, things other than diet? Well, I think the um, many different organizations talk about it in different ways. The list of, let's say, lifestyle changes that we try to focus on from um, a very compassionate place of understanding with the habitual team and the habitual approach is really centered on habit change. So just regular patterns that you might have in, in your daily life and finding ways that um, really align with who you see yourself as and who you want to become essentially. So we're taking it from an approach of pattern recognition rather than saying, okay, you need to change your diet and then you need to change your exercise. Of course, those are also part of the conversation, um, but we're trying to take a more comprehensive approach um, than that. Okay, well, maybe now is a good time to bring in Mindy because you you are a type two sufferer or have been and have. Well, tell me, what where are you currently, Mindy? Have have you kind of um, got type two diabetes? Have you have you um, cured it? Morning, Mike. Um, no, I haven't cured it, unfortunately. Um, I've been type two diabetic for fifteen years now, um, so I'm taking um, tablets daily. It's been a real struggle. I think um, one of the things that we all sort of touched on was the kind of the psychological aspect. And I think for me, lifestyle change is the key, but that sometimes is actually the hardest thing to unlock because I think behind that, there's also so much going on for a person. So, for example, for myself, food has always been a comfort. Um, it's always been my kind of like go-to thing. So changing my diet has been like, you know, really difficult because it depending on you know how I'm feeling and um mm -hmm. with the kind of struggles of life etc and I've been a carer for my mum for a couple of years and things just going on so changing my relationship with food has is actually the hardest thing um and also support I think when I was first diagnosed it was very much oh you know you're you're quite young to have diabetes and um it was a bit more of a telling off as opposed to right okay this is what you've got this is how we can support you um, and after about the first year, I don't think I really had, apart from my supposedly annual reviews, I didn't really have any support. So it was all down to me, which is a kind of like the old Google and checking stuff for myself. But um, yeah, it's difficult because although we talk about it more now, there's still not as much empathy. I wouldn't say we need sympathy because I think that makes it feel like, you know, oh, you know, poor you, but it isn't. It's a case of empathy and understanding because, you know, like, in said so many people are suffering with this and there's so many probably yeah. undiagnosed as well yeah. um but I think the key would be just you know being able to have the support and just knowing that it's readily available but also that stigma because as soon as I was diagnosed I didn't tell people for a very long time I was so embarrassed um I felt like everyone was going to say oh you must be so lazy you must eat so much and all those kind of typical things that just kind of go around in your head um, so for a good few years, I, I probably just ignored it. If that sounds that sounds awful, whereas if that kind of support and stigma support was there, and the stigma wasn't, I think it would have been easier for me to kind of open up and sure. be able to sort of you know ask for support and and discuss the issue and, and get better sooner. So I'm so um, I'm you, not in remission. <laughs> do do, yeah. do you feel that you you know you're able to do that now and life is somewhat better? 
It's slightly better. Um, there's still, I'm still quite kind of careful of who I tell because it's, um, it still feels like they're just going to look at you because you do get this look of like, oh, as in it's almost like, oh my God, they must be really, really, really unhealthy and really lazy, mm. which funny enough, I, I'm not really lazy. Um, so it's still difficult. And I think that, especially over COVID probably there's been a lack of support from like the health services has been quite dismal. So um, it's just, yeah, I feel, to be honest, I'll be honest, it's probably gone by the wayside a bit for the last few years. So I kind of feel like I need to refocus on, on prioritizing my health, but in a way I do feel like I'm left to my own devices to do that, which is um, not great. Oh, can I just add on a point there? I, I, I think we need incredibly brave um, for, for talking about it and being so open, which is so rare, as I said, but I think she's brought up such an important point there, which is around stigma around the disease, preventing access to care and support, which can be helpful or even transformative, right? So, so we hear it time and time again, that people don't want to talk to their friends and family. They don't want to talk to their doctors. They don't want to go and access a blood test. They don't want to engage because of the stigma around the disease and every what we know about type 2 diabetes is the earlier that we can get on top of it the earlier that we can make change is so much more efficacious or effective sorry for the actual underlying disease process and actually kind of stopping either the development or even reaching remission and so at every point stigma is a harness holding people back from accessing the care that, that they need and and we the the whole point of our five million faces campaign is to really try and and break that stigma and show that show that actually this can happen to anyone this can happen at any stage of your life and judgment and stigma are such a useless and actually counterproductive emotion that actually we should be trying to conduct conversations about this disease in a much more sure. positive way well I, I i you know you're well on the way to doing that or you're you're certainly making a dent on on doing that but you know chatting on on programs uh, such as this so that you know that that's to be uh, lauded let me ask you one question though i i didn't actually i had a look at your um your website habitual health and uh it, very interesting you know it goes over the sorts of things we've been uh, chatting about but one thing that you were talking that crops up there, talking about, because uh, a lot of it does come to diet, talking about diet and getting into remission. How many people are actually successful if in getting type 2 diabetes into remission? Is it is it a realistic goal? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. So we know that the main determinant factor of, of the chance of reaching remission is, is how early we can help people to reach effective, clinically evidence-backed remission programs as soon as possible. So in a cohort of people that were diagnosed within three years, um, when they went through a remission program or a fast weight loss program, such as habitual, for example, we know that about 60% of people can enter remission. So it's a huge portion of people. In the pre-diabetic phase, we know that actually it's it's even easier and and you only need, you need to lose a little bit uh, less weight to enter remission. Um, but we also still know that it's possible far into the disease as well, but those are more anecdotal supports rather than uh, supported by large-scale randomized controlled trial. But essentially, at whatever stage of the disease, you can make a significant progress with helping type 2 diabetes um, by engaging with effective uh, behavioral change and remission yeah. programs. And uh, when, it, when it comes to the diet again, do you find people can keep that going? Because I, I, I noticed that part of... Uh, 
the program on habitual health is actually supplying food mm. uh, because it has to be you know a controlled diet but do people kind of get not addicted to it but dependent on it almost and sort of lose the ability to think about what they're going to eat for themselves i kind of actually has that been an issue uh, I don't think anyone's ever become dependent on it. Um, I would say that the what we do, the reason we provide food is because actually if we're going to take people through a very fast weight loss program, so trying to lose about 15 kilograms in about three months, the simplicity of having food delivered and everything um, provided for you is so beneficial in terms of both the speed of weight loss and the safety um, that we can provide with that, but also giving people the space with which to address the, the really complex uh, psychological, behavioral, social um, uh, uh, issues that they may also interplay with their relationship with not just diet, but also sleep and also physical activity. Um, and so it gives us a very fertile ground with which to make really significant behavioral change for people. Um, and we never really want people to be dependent on, on the food that we provide. Actually, what we want to do over the course of our program is actually really to imbue our patients with the skills and the habits, as Celia has talked about, um, to continue uh, on their own in the long term, we provide our app, we provide our support team for life for our patients. And we know that because everybody finds it hard in the long term, right? You know, we go through a stressful period in our life. Um, you know, Mindy talks about caring for a mum. You know, these things, these challenges that life put in front of us, which are out of our control, make it a lot harder. And we know that actually patients need ongoing daily support, which uh, you know, it's just not the provided in the health service at the moment when you just simply get an annual checkup and a blood test and a review of your medication. So uh, we're trying to show that there is a better, more proactive way to manage the condition. No, okay. And, and well, it sounds like you're doing it very successfully. And also, you know, in the long term, it's got to be good for everyone, good for the people with type 2 diabetes, but good for everyone who's chipping into the NHS. Because as, as you said earlier, you know, it costs the NHS vast sums of money. So you know, this this is great. Thank you for coming and uh, chatting about it. If people are listening to this and thinking, right, now's the time I need to do something about my type 2 diabetes or I'm worried about it, what have you, um, what's a good resource for them to have a look at? I'm sure you have a, a, a website. Yes, they, they can absolutely uh, use our website, which is tryhabitual.com. Um, but there's tons of other ways to engage with us as well. We often find that people want to think a lot about it. They want to be at the right stage of their life. So remember, there is support by going to talk to your doctor. There are other great websites out there, Diabetes UK. Obviously, tryhabitual.com has tons of amazing resources as well. But also one of the things that we're also doing for, for Diabetes Week, which is this week, is, as I said, trying to raise awareness of the um, the... The, how widespread this problem is and how many people it affects and how different the people who live with diabetes are. Um, and so we're doing a campaign called 5 Million Faces. So if there are any uh, people living with type 2 diabetes out there, feel free to go on our website. There's a little banner at the top um, and you can upload a selfie. Um, our wonderful illustrator will do a little illustration for you and we'll send it back to you and we'll put it on the website. And the aim is to really just to show the world that there are so many people living with the disease and, and maybe try and break some of the stereotypes that exist around uh, people who live with type 2 diabetes. Good, right, that sounds like a, a very worthwhile plan. So uh, Ian, Sylvia and Mindy, thank you very much indeed for chatting. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, thank you so much, Mike. Thank you.
The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things. Make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with Zero Zilch Zip. Because nothing's better. The station that makes you feel good. Next up, it's Gary Watts of East Knoll. Gary's a very interesting guy. He's done loads of things, and he's an inventor. And he's recently developed something called the Yo Back. See if you can spot my uh, my little uh, mistake when introducing him. In fact, he's created something called the Yo Board. So. Um, Gary, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to chat today. It's the yo back. <laughs> the yo back. Look, <laughs> I told I, look, I told you I wasn't very good at interviewing, didn't I? Good start. I like it. Yeah, the yo back. Now I should know because I've tried it out. But I, yeah. I better give the listeners a bit of a background. I, I, I met Gary at, uh, at one of these exhibitions. It was called Elevate, and Elevate, I think, kind of is for anyone that has anything to do with gyms and uh, workout and stuff like that. So I, I walked past uh, Gary's stand and um, I think there was someone lying on the floor when I, I went by, which sort of made me look twice. And uh, he's created something which we will talk about um, to help people with like yoga or if, if people have got bad backs and that sort of thing. And it's called the Yo Back. Not the yo board. All right. So, first, first question, Gary, which is probably a bit unfair, but I'll ask it anyway. Are, are you one of these inventor blokes that can't go more than a couple of days without an idea of a good invention? Oh, I wish I could say I was Elon Musk, but not quite. Not quite. This is my first and only invention, although it has most definitely evolved from what its original purpose was. Yeah. So. It's been that now that it started, you know, that's how the train starts leaving, leaving the station. Once it started, your brain's like, oh, what can I do now? What can I do now? Right. So, well, so, so can you, can you give it like a, a, a potted version of the process? No, actually, before you do get, tell us the process of inventing this thing, tell us kind of give us a, a summary of what it is and what it, what it can do for me. All right. So essentially the, the tagline that we're going for is, uh, you know, the wheel has been around for thousands of years and everybody always says you shouldn't reinvent the wheel. And I thought, well, it's been around forever and it's never changed. So we should reinvent it. So essentially the Yobak is a wheel that's in three separate pieces that slot together. So you can use the full wheel for like full body stretching so you can roll out over the back of it. But what makes it different to anything else is that you can use each three of the separate pieces. You can take them apart and then you can use each separate piece on its own. So you can use 
those separate pieces for a, a, a ton of different things. So you can use that for um, uh, yoga. You can use that for stretching out your lower back, stretching out your neck. You can use it for posture support. So right now on the back of my chair, it's kept helping me to keep my spine up straight because we spend so much time sitting at a desk. Um, you can use it for calf raises and squats and mobility. Uh, it's just so many different ways that it can be used. And it's just evolved from this very small idea that I drew on a napkin in 2019 to then being a, a big trade show in the XL arena. So it's been, it's right. been, a, it's been an interesting time. Yeah, very, very exciting. Okay, so the, the idea evolved from a sketch on a napkin, right? What what yeah. happened next then? What happened the next day? Did you sober well, up? So, so, <laughs> so essentially what happened was I was on a train. Uh, in, I was traveling in Sri Lanka 2019. And we were traveling for about six hours. And we didn't realize it at the time, but it was Sri Lankan Independence Day. So the train was absolutely round. There was so many people in the couch. At one point, I was actually hanging off the out the door to be able to stretch my body. So I had to stand up for six hours. And I got off the train and I was like, you know, I wish there was something that I could like, I wish there was something in my backpack that I could have with me right now that would help me get rid of my back pain. Cause there's nothing I'm not going to go around with like a thera gun or, or foam roll because foam rollers are massive or wheel or pull up bar or anything like this. So it kind of just, that would just set the seed. And I just kind of thought about it. And then, yeah, about three weeks later, this light bulb just came out. Well, why don't we just have a wheel that you can roll out your spine, but it's in three pieces. And I'm like, well, actually it was four pieces originally. And I got, went to the bar, can I have a, can I have a beer and a napkin? Got one beer and a napkin, drew it out. And then we got it, we got it 3D printed and it was dreadful. <laughs> it was dreadful. It weighed about four kilos. It was enormous. And we said, well, we could probably do a bit better than that. And then we ended up doing, I think about 10 different prototypes over two years. Until until we until until we finally perfected it last year, right? And so the perfected model, what is it made from? So it's made from um, ABS and a little bit of glass fiber. What? Sorry, so, what's ABS? ABS plastic. Okay. ABS plastic and glass fiber, um, but it's super strong. We had it crushed, and it broke at five hundred and something pounds. It was 252 kilos. Um, and then the top of it is a cork mat. So um, we, the reason we went for a cork mat is one, a few reasons. One, it's sustainable. Two, it's antibacterial, so it can, it's easy to clean. And three, it's actually, more, it's actually more grippy. It's grippier than a plastic mat. So... If anybody listening does yoga, they might have a, a cork mat and they'll know that the more they sweat, it's actually grippier. Right. So if, if you're doing press ups or you're doing uh, calf raises or squats or, or you're just using it in the morning, rolling out on it, it actually grips to your back a lot more. 
Okay. So that's the reason why we went for for cork. And also, I can imagine if if you if you're doing uh, like a a back roll on it, it feels warm on your back. Some of these yeah, things feel cold, and you kind of hunch up. Yeah, it does. It 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 really does. It does feel quite nice. Um, and I need to check into it, and maybe your listeners might know better. But someone was telling me that it has. There are some healing benefits to using cork. Apparently, I'm not sure if that's scientifically proven, but I'd, I'd have to check it up. But uh, when I was actually at Elevate, yeah, someone said that there's some some healing benefits to to using cork on your body rather than using plastic. Okay, I, yeah, maybe I don't know. I don't know. Don't, I, <laughs> no I, idea. I can't. I can't comment. Can't comment, Gary. <laughs> All right, so. So, but have you have you done yoga yourself? Are you are you a kind of a, a yogi type? Well, it depends what you say. Have I done? I've been doing yoga now for about seven years. Uh, I did my yoga teacher training, two hundred hours, um, last year. Was it last year? You know, with with the pandemic, you kind of you kind of forget what year it was, right? Don't you? Mm. Like, was that last year? Yeah, I think it was last year. Um, but I'm still terrible. <laughs> That's why. It's not like my, my partner. But that that doesn't doing... sound like a, a, a great advert for the teaching thing you went on, the teaching course you went on. Well, you know, the thing was, actually, the teaching, the teaching was, was amazing because it didn't, I didn't become a teacher because of it, but it, it developed my understanding of how to do yoga and how to get in the poses correctly because I didn't realize when you're doing yoga about how much of it is hip alignment and understanding where your feet go and, and internal external rotations. And once you get that understanding and breath work, once you get that understanding, which is what I got from my 200 hours, my own practice itself, uh, it, 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 it exponentially went much, much, much better. Right. So I, I would, I mean, I mean, I would highly recommend yoga. I mean, just to go off on a little bit of a tangent, um, I'm a very, very injured individual. Uh, my body is slightly broken, which is one of the reasons why I invented the yoga back. Um, and I was getting uh, weekly sports massages and the guy I was getting a massage from, he said, you need to do yoga. You're so tight and so inflexible. You need to do yoga. Right. And I remember when I was in school, I did the, um, it's like a sit and reach test. So you basically put your feet on a box and then they'll get a ruler and you try and touch your toes and they see how far either away from your toes or past your toes are. And I'll never forget it because I was a 30 centimeter ruler away from my toes when I was like 16. <laughs> and that's just from years of running on a road and playing football. Right. So, so is, is it playing football that kind of and, damaged your body? Yes, yes, absolutely. I um as as a as a winger, you just get kicked constantly. You just you just get kicked. I mean, I was a long distance runner, so running on roads and that probably hasn't helped, but mainly just playing football and just getting kicked constantly and landing awkwardly. I've broken a few bones, I've dislocated my elbow, I've sprained my ankle more times than I can count. Um and once I and my back I hurt my back when I was about 12 and I was going to a chiropractor regularly and doing yoga brought that down 
to go into a chiropractor very, very rarely. And funny, funny story is actually my chiropractor, he called me up after I invented the Yobak and I was using the Yobak every day. He actually called me up to say, hey, Gary, how are you doing? Uh, I haven't seen you for a while. Is everything OK? And I said, yeah, 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 it's great, actually. Um, I've got I, I invented this product and it's been really helping me. And he said, oh, yeah, what's that? Come in and bring it in. And he said, oh, great. Can I sell that in my clinic? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so. Excellent. Yeah. All right. So let I'm going to interrupt you here because this kind of leads on very nicely. Uh, talking about the Yobak, um, I, I wanted to ask what physiotherapists and chiropractors and the like uh, think of it. In some ways, you've answered the question already, but what have you found? What have you discovered? So yesterday, yesterday, actually, I spent the day filming um with a physiotherapist phys using so uh different ways to use it and whatever so after elevate i actually went straight to another festival called balance festival and that was in short it was straight afterwards so that was six days six days of standing up try try trying to trying to get people to use it and he was one of the first people that came in and straight away he was like oh i can do this i can do that i can do this and he showed me a load of different ways. So he bought one the first day. And then he came back on the last day and said, I've got one for the clinic, but I need one for my house. Right. So he got one for his house. And then he sent me an email and he said, you know, on our Instagram, uh, we do loads of uh, filming. And I think the product's great. And I want to do a whole series on, on it. And can you come and introduce yourself and show us some ways to use it? So I went to Bermondsey yesterday. So it's Hito Physiotherapy. And we went there yesterday and we spent the day filming and he was showing me different ways to use it. And he was saying that he uses it almost every morning himself. And he's going on holiday to Mexico and he wants to bring at least like one or two of the pieces with him on holiday, which is exactly why I created it. So that you can mm -hmm. take it anywhere you want. So like he's really on board. Um, as I said, my, my, my chiropractor is going to hopefully sell it in his clinic soon. Um, we've had uh, yoga teachers uh, have, have really liked it. Pilates teachers have really liked it. And uh, yeah, so it's the feedback has been, it's so humbling, to be honest, Mike. I, I'm just a guy that made something to help my own back pain and, and, and stiffness. And then I have a physio saying, oh, yeah, I use that every day. You know, I really want I really want to do this. I, I, I think it's a great product. I want to put this on my Instagram and, and show people how it can help them. Like it's 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 mind boggling to me that I can just make something that 400 people have, have are, are super happy about. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's fantastic. Although you say just made something. It, it was, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that glosses over the fact that actually it was quite hard work. You know, you said there were how, how many prototypes did you say? So, yeah, so we did about 10 prototypes and then we did a Kickstarter last year. So we did a Kickstarter last year, November to December, where we raised enough money. We sold about 350, where we raised 22,000 pounds. And that gave us enough money to do the mold because that's what costs the money with these kind of things is, is getting the initial mold. Mm -hmm. So 
we did that and then it took a bit of a delay because of the pandemic and and china closing down um but we got those out to the customers in may and june and it's been nothing but excellent feedback so far and then yeah obviously then i did the elevate show and that, i think elevate for me it was such a great experience it was such a great experience to just get it out because you have this idea and then all you can do is show it to your friends and especially with the pandemic so you can't travel too far mm-hmm. you can just show it to your friends and they go oh yeah it's great mate it's great it's really cool can i get one and you go well yeah you should get one but they are your friends They're my friends but so, you know <laughs> and then they, they actually, might not say yeah sorry gary you know this ain't gonna hack it <laughs> yeah right right real friends wouldn't maybe they're not maybe not maybe they're not real friends and um so yeah so but to get it out in front of people like yourself and to just see people's opinions like just hearing this all day oh <laughs> just hearing that all day you're just like wow i, I made that <laughs> how did that happen i i want to i want to ask you a technical question something that i've, I've been wondering so this uh circle it's, it's made into three pieces so you can take them apart and put it back mm-hmm. together again what joins them so it must be quite a robust kind of method of the whole lot clicking together well not so much it started off more complicated than it needed to be and then we ended up i mean we used three different engineers to get to this point um it started off with four pieces and then it wasn't strong enough because you had like the joints directly above each other or below each other mm-hmm. um, and now it's just an angled joint and the tolerance which so the gap basically is super thin we're only talking a millimeter or two uh, so then it just slots together and then it then then we have a couple of locks that lock it in place so it doesn't slide out right so it started off we were thinking about getting um uh we were having one of our prototypes was metal it was like a metal tongue Mm-hmm. Um, and then that broke and it was too heavy because the whole idea is that you can take it with you. The whole idea is if you're going to work, like right now I'm sitting in my sister's house and I'm using it on my chair and I'm using it on my feet. And I just traveled three weeks of Europe and I carried it with me the whole three weeks and it wasn't a burden. So you couldn't have anything that was too heavy. So a lot of our joints became too clunky or too complicated and now it's essentially like a jigsaw puzzle you just slot it in click right. the locks and it, so did you come up with that design or did you buy some help in yeah so we, we 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 got a um we kind of got most of the way there and then we hired an engineer from greece to help us develop it a little bit further and then once we got to there and then um it's manufactured in China and we found a, a sourcing agent. Uh, it is an American company based out in China and they had their own engineer. And then we kind of just tweaked it a little bit, tweaked it a little bit, tweaked it a little bit. Um, that's why we did so many prototypes. And then we were like, okay, we've, we've got it. We, we finally got it. And it's just like an angled joint basically. So that it distributes the weight nicely, right? So look, if if people are listening to this, Gary, and they're thinking, "All right, this sounds kind of interesting," I would like to 
like ha have a look at it or possibly or try it out essentially get one um how where are they available at the minute so at the moment they are only available on our website which is eastnoll.com that's another story we can go into if you like east Knoll is east like north south east west and then Knoll n-o-l-e so eastnoll.com or if you just go into google and you type in the yo back which is y-o-b-a-c-k all right uh, and it will go to our website um i've got a little discount code for any of your listeners oh yeah so yeah, given that so if you go in and you go to and you put the discount code relax back, that will give you 15 pounds off. Um, it's free shipping for uh, 48 hours, free shipping. It has a 30 day money back guarantee. So the idea is we wanted to make something that is going to help you. And we're so confident that it's going to help you that you can take it, try it out for 30 days. If you don't like it, you just send it straight back. Uh, it's got an ebook that comes with it that's got about 60 different ways to use it so far. Uh, links to a YouTube channel, which we're currently building. And we're trying to get some physiotherapists on board and chiropractors on board and yoga teachers, Pilates teachers to eventually build up a huge library so that when you get it, you, you've got so many different ways. And we're asking people that have already bought it to tell us how they use it. So. That's another interesting thing was I didn't really use it on my chair too much. But so many people messaged us and said, it's great. I use it at the office. Right. I use it. I use it on my back. And I, and then I was like, oh, I never really thought about that. So then I started putting it on my chair. I was like, oh, it's amazing. That feels great. You know, that, that's, I sit at work all day. That feels great. And that's, that's, it specifically came from one backer from the Kickstarter that said he uses it like that. And I tried it. So it's like an ongoing process. Okay. Brilliant. Well, it sounds like the thing is sort of is moving forward. People are using it and liking it. You just hinted at something else. You said there's a whole nother story there. The name of your company, East Null. Tell that story quickly. Yeah. So, so the idea, the two names, the, the, the company name is East Knoll. So um, I actually live in Vietnam and my girlfriend is Korean. So East Knoll is, everyone always says, well, that's a weird name. So East Knoll is because we, we lived in Southeast Asia. And then Knoll is, is a Korean word. So sometimes they don't have, like, direct, like, they don't have direct translation. So the idea is... Uh, so Knoll is the glow of the sunrise or the sunset, like this, the glow of the sky mm -hmm. of the sunrise or the sunset. So the, the idea is, well, if you get the yo back, it's the start of a new day. OK, all right. I, I can see that. I think that works very nicely. Yeah. And then the, the name, the yo back became uh, because we want to relax yo back or fix yo back. OK. All right. No, very nice. Good luck. It sounds great. You've talked about it beautifully. I wish you a lot of luck. I just want to remind readers of the discount code. Relax back. You put that into the, the website and the website is, what's the website again? So it's eastnoll.com, E-A-S-T-N-O-L-E.com. Or if you just go into Google search or Bing search and you just type in yo back. 
Y-O-B-A-C-K. You'll get it. All right, look, Gary, thank you very much indeed for chatting. Uh, Thanks a lot, Mike. uh, It's great to meet you at Elevate. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show, and they were Dr. Ian Braithwaite, MD and CEO of Habitual Health, Dr. Silja Vuma, behavioural scientist, and Mindy, she's a patient with type 2 diabetes. And lastly, it was Gary Watts of East Knoll. And then, of course, thank you to you for listening. That was the Relax Back UK show with me, Mike Dill. Thank you for listening, and please do join us again next time. Thank you.